dismissed from nursery. You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2 is where we're going to be continuing our series looking at the letters from Jesus. And i got to turn on my mic. That'd be helpful, wouldn't it? And we arrive at the center point of these letters, at the fourth, the letter to the church in Thyatira. Church in Thyatira. Let me see if I can get this to... See if some technology will work this morning. Some of you may be familiar with one of the ways that some interpret these letters. It's not as popular anymore. I have a lot of older commentaries from Grandpa um, on Revelation. A lot of them kind of look at the letters this way. But it used to be popular to to associate each of these letters um, with a different age of the church. Um, Last week we looked at the church in Pergamum. church in Pergamum was a church that compromised. And many looked at that church and looked back to the 3rd and 4th century when Constantine made Christianity the official religion in all of Rome. And that combination, that linking of the church and government led to a weakened church. And with each of these letters, and and they follow the time period as we work through the letters, um, they kind of associate each letter with a different time period. And of course, we're in the last letter. We've been in the last letter in their view for a long time, the church in Laodicea, the lukewarm Church. Now, I don't think that's as helpful of a way to look at these letters. I think you miss some things when you're focused on finding where in history this letter applies. However, as I studied this letter that we're going to look at this morning, the letter uh, to the church in Thyatira, I could not help but think that much of what we see in this letter applies to us here in the American church in the 21st century. Um, The church in Thyatira was a church that was doing many things well, as we'll see. They are a busy, busy church. A church that is full of good works and a church that is growing in them. They're adding to them. They're doing more and more and they're doing it better and better. However, the majority of this letter is spent on something that the church in Thyatira is overlooking. The church is overlooking a massive problem, and that is their problem of immorality and idolatry. In some ways, this just continues what we looked at last week. You remember last week as we were going through Pergamum, I said that I feel like we're on the other side of Jesus' words to Pergamum. Well, on the other side of Pergamum, not just in where it comes in our text, but on the other side of Pergamum is Thyatira, a church that did not heed the warnings of Jesus to to Pergamum and instead continued on in them. And if we're going to continue on in this text, we would see we go from Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis. And Sardis is a dead church. And not it's not just the way it's laid out in our text, but it's a progression that you see in churches. Pergamum was a church that flirted with sin. Thyatira is a church that becomes comfortable with and ignores sin. And Sardis is a church that is killed because of its sin. Because of that, the title of this morning's letter, 
I've given this, the title of this morning's sermon, kind of summing up Jesus' words to Thyatira. Thyatira, I see what you are ignoring. I see what you are ignoring. Follow along as I read verses 18 through 29 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of church in Thyatira write, Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken into pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God we ask that we would indeed hear what the Spirit has said to the churches. Help us to hear it for us here as this church. What lessons we can learn from this letter to Thyatira. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, favorite game that children like to play is the game hide-and-go-seek. My kids were playing it the other day at a party we were at. It's played among big children, but especially little children. They love to play this game, and it's fun to watch little children play hide-and-go-seek because they don't quite get the concept of hiding. If you've played this with a a one- or two-year-old, you know that you you will go into the room where that child is hiding, so-called hiding, and you will find them in a very obvious place. Maybe they're sitting on the couch or they're standing in a corner and their head is plastered into that corner or their head is buried in the couch and their eyes are squeezed tight as closed as just as they're squeezed closed just as tight as they can. And there's usually some giggling involved. Maybe they'll even say, Daddy, you can't find me. And in their mind they're hidden because they can't see you. And if they can't see you, then that must mean that you can't see them. Now now that's cute in kids and we laugh at that as adults, but if we're honest, we sometimes do the same thing. 
Not with hide and seek, of course, we know better than that. We know how to find good hiding spots. But there are areas in our life that we think if we just can't see it, if we just don't pay attention to that, maybe it'll go away. Maybe it won't find me. I know that I need to deal with this issue with my friend. I know a conversation needs to take place with my spouse. This incident happened and it's it's there. But maybe if I just ignore it, maybe it'll go away. Maybe if I just don't address the problem, maybe it will work itself out. Maybe you've had a task on your calendar. You know you need to do it. You know you need to accomplish it. But you just keep bumping it down to the bottom of your to-do list. And think someday... Maybe I'll get to it. Because you really don't want to get to it. So you keep putting it off. The problem with that is rarely, if ever, do problems ever just go away. I was listening to ESPN podcast this week and you find stuff for sermons all over the place when you're, when you're kind of listening for that. And the, one of the hosts said he always tells his children to be quick to solve all problems and deal with all problems, even small problems. Because problems never Go away. And the longer you let them linger, the bigger they'll grow. And a small problem will become a big problem. Well, a small problem in the church in Thyatira became a big problem. Because they chose to just stop looking at it. They thought if maybe if they would just ignore it, maybe if they would just look the other direction, this problem would go away. But instead it has not. The problem has grown. And when Jesus writes this letter to the church, he points out the elephant that's in the room. The thing that is there that no one wants to admit is there. And he says, you might be trying not to see it. But I want you to know, Thyatira, I see it. I see it and it needs to be dealt with. You should have dealt with it a long time ago, but I will deal with it now. I see it. That's where this letter begins With Jesus reminding the church in Thyatira that He sees them. That He is the all-knowing, all-seeing God. Now perhaps that doesn't seem like a profound point. We have mentioned before that in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is portrayed as a one like the Son of Man who is walking among these golden lampstands that represent His church. He's in the midst of them, so that might seem like, well, this is an obvious point. Jesus sees His church. But Thyatira needs this reminder because it would be easy for them to think that Jesus doesn't see them. Easy for them to think that they are overlooked by Jesus. Almost every commentary I read pointed out the fact that while this is the longest of the seven letters, it is written to the least significant of the seven cities. Thyatira was not a significant city in the first century. Thyatira is what we would call nowadays a a blue-collar town. If we were to compare the cities that we have looked at so far, the churches that dwelt in the cities, we might say that Ephesus is is New York City. It's a city of great importance. Uh, Smyrna, which was a godless city, we might associate with L.A. Pergamum, the capital of the region, would be D.C. But Thyatira would be a place like Cleveland or Buffalo. A blue-collar town full of hard-working families. The only other reference we have to Thyatira in the Bible is we're introduced to one of the workers of this city. In Acts 16, we meet Lydia, who's introduced to her simply as the fact that she is a worker. She is a businesswoman, a seller of purple goods. 
Thyatira was known for its production of this purple dye, but it was also known for its metalwork and its pottery and its wool and its linen. It was a city of industry. It was a city of workers. And the church in Thyatira was a city full of workers. Several times their work is mentioned in the letter. And it would be easy for a church like that in a place like that to think that it was a church of little significance. A small church in a small town. They weren't located in a famous city. They weren't led by famous pastors like Ephesus. They were insignificant. But Jesus writes to them and tells them, I see you and I care about what is happening in all my churches and what's happening in your church. Even for a church on a back road surrounded by fields, he cares what happens in his churches. Notice how he introduces himself in Revelation 2.18. We've said here there's a reason he highlights different aspects of his character. And here he introduces himself as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. Both of these come from Revelation chapter 1. The exact same language. His eyes are flames of fire. His feet are burnished bronze. And both of bronze. And both of them remind Thyatira that he sees them. Yes, them. Eyes of fire refers to the piercing gaze of Jesus, who is able not only to see them but to see through them, to see what they are trying to unsee and trying to cover up in their church. Later on, he says that he sees that he is the one who searches mind and heart, who searches mind and and heart. Refers to the thoughts and the emotions of a person. He sees what's inside of us. And he searches out what's inside of us. His eyes are like fire and his feet are like bronze, signifying his power and authority. Burnished bronze, the ESV says. The New King James and other translations say fine brass. And the Greek word that is used here, both here and in chapter 1, this burnished bronze in the ESV or the brass in the other translations, it's a word that is not found anywhere else It's a Greek word not found anywhere else in the Bible or anywhere else in this form in Greek literature. It's only found here. And historians tell us that this is referring to a particular kind of metal that was developed by the metal workers here in Thyatira. It's a a mixture. the, the, The word points to a mixture of zinc and copper. And this mixture was created and invented in Thyatira. It was a mixture that was known for its strength, and it's known for its value. It was used to make armor and used to make and form coins. And Jesus comes to them armed with this metal. Not only signifying to the Thyatirans his strength and his ability to deal with their problems, but also letting them know that he knows them. He's, he's wearing their team colors. He's dressed in their trademark metal. Jesus sees the church, but he also sees what's going on in the church. And as he casts his penetrating eyes on Thyatira, what he sees is a church that is headed in two different directions. He sees a church that is going in two different and two opposite directions. On the one hand, he looks at the church and he sees a clear record of spiritual growth. Verse 19 highlights the growth 
the growth particularly in faithful works. But on the other hand, he sees something else, and that is the evidence of tragic spiritual decline. Spiritual growth on the one hand, in one area, but tragic evidence of spiritual decline, both in the same small church of Thyatira. First, he points to the positive. And that is the progress seen in their work. The church in Thyatira, again, is a busy church. They are a church who is hard at work. And Jesus knows this. I know, Jesus says, your works. And then he says, these works are your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that these latter works, what you're doing now, what you've been doing lately, exceed what you did at the first. You are growing. You are getting stronger. You are doing more than you did at first. Thyatira is a church known for their good works, and Jesus praises them for them. It's a wonderful description to be applied to a church, especially when they're coming from the lips of Jesus. A church that is known for its, its love. And this love leads to service. It's the motivation for service. Unlike Ephesus, Thyatira is not doing works without love. They aren't just going through the motions. But all of their works, all of their acts of service for others and to God is done because of their love for God and their love for others. They are a church of loving good works. And they are a church that is grounded in faith, which is a word that could also be translated as trust. They live their lives trusting God, anchored in God. And this trust, leads them to patient endurance, or some translators put, say, say, perseverance. But Osborne highlights that this perseverance, the commentator Osborne highlights that this perseverance is not hiding out in a hole. It's not just bearing up the pressure by standing still, but it refers to an active perseverance in the midst of pressure and hard times. It's moving forward in the midst of difficulties. It's continuing to do good works despite the pressure. And all of this is because they have a rock-solid trust in God. This trust leads them to action. They're a church of action. And the best part is how Jesus ends. They are growing in all of these things. They have more love than they had at first. They have more faith than they had a year ago. They have more acts of service than they did when the first when the church was first planted. They are growing in their patient endurance. They're not wavering. They're not dwindling. There's growth. There's progress. They're a church who is following Peter's words in Second Peter chapter one, where he lists all these virtues that we are to be adding to our faith and then he ends by saying that if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ the the Christians in Thyatira they know that the Christian life is not merely one of not going backwards but it's also not one of standing still it's one of movement it's one of going forward Just as a healthy child grows, healthy Christians need to continue to grow. And the church in Thyatira is growing in this area. And Jesus says, I praise you for this. There's a clear record 
of your spiritual progress in the areas of your works, in the area of your works of faith. But, we've said this, seen this in many of these letters, there is often and always a but. But, he almost says that as a, as a, the way he kind of puts verse 19 in there, he quickly gets through them so he can get to the, to the but. He highlights the positive, but why he's writing this letter really is to confront them about the tragic evidence he sees of spiritual decline in their lives. In the areas of their works, there's progress. But when it comes to their holiness, when it comes to the church's purity, there's a decline. But I have this against you, he says, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. What's the problem in Thyatira? The problem is tolerance. The the virtue of American culture is a vice in the church of Christ. They are tolerating the woman Jezebel, who is doing two things. She is is calling herself a a prophetess, and she is teaching and seducing Jesus' servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And then Jesus says, I have given her time to repent. I gave her a first warning, but now I'm giving her an ultimatum. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I gave her time to repent, but she would not. There's a theme that we should notice as we are working through these letters, and that theme is the vital need for discernment in the churches. Notice that in many of these letters, there is something that is presenting itself as something that it is not. In Ephesus, remember, there's those who come to the church and they call themselves apostles. They've got the name tag of apostles and maybe even bearing some evidence that they are apostles. But Jesus says they are not. And you have recognized this, Ephesus. In Smyrna, there's those who say that they are Jews. And are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And now in Thyatira, there is, Thyatira, there is one who calls herself a prophetess. And what's implied is that she is not. Later on, we're gonna see that she, she, she she's teaching the deep things of Satan. She's a prophet, but not a prophet of God. She's not giving words from God, she's giving words from Satan. And there is a great need that we see throughout these letters in the church for discernment, to not simply accept things as they present themselves, but to test them by the Word of God. One of Paul's letters says that my prayer, and what he's praying for the churches, what he's written down in his Word so that we can receive it as a prayer for us, my prayer that your love may abound more and more. The church, in Ephes- or the church in Thyatira is doing that. Their love is abounding more and more. But here is not what's happening. It is abounding with knowledge and with all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ through the glory and the praise of God. The church in Thyatira was abounding in love but not with knowledge and discernment. Ephesus had truth without love. Thyatira has love without truth. Again, that is the church we are 
surrounded by. That is the culture that we are surrounded by. That is the American culture today to promote love without truth. And so much of the church is buying into that. But you must have both. In the Bible, we are told that we are to speak the truth and to speak it in love. We must speak the truth, but we must speak it in love. You cannot have one without the other. We follow Jesus, who was described as one who is full of grace, which we might associate with love, but he was also full of truth. He had both. He had the fullness of both. Thyatira had left behind truth in the name of love, which has led to them tolerating something in their midst that was not excellent or pure. They're tolerating that woman, Jezebel. Now, most likely, the woman's name in this church was not Jezebel. I don't know if you've noticed, but there are not too many girls around whose name is Jezebel. If you're having a baby and you open the baby book to see common names, you will not find Jezebel. You might, if you're naming your cat, maybe that's a good name for the cat, for Jezebel, but, but not your daughters. You don't name your daughter Jezebel. But he applies this word to her, applies this name to her, because he wants to say something about who she is. She's like the woman Jezebel in the Old Testament. Her story is in 1 Kings, starting in chapter 16. We're not going to look there this morning, but you may remember that she was a foreigner who was married, a foreigner of Israel who married Ahab, the king of, of Israel. And as queen of Israel, she led the nation into all sorts of idolatry and immorality. She was the one who who was the rival of Elijah. She existed at the same time of Elijah. Am I right in that? Was Elijah or Elisha? Jeff. Okay. I didn't put that in my notes. And I always get the Jah and Shah mixed up. But this is exactly what this woman at Thyatira is doing as far as what Jezebel did. Leading God's people, a foreigner coming into the people of God and leading them into all kinds of immorality and idolatry. And by labeling her as Jezebel, the church knows exactly what Jesus thinks of her. Most likely the way she was doing this had to do with this blue-collar town of Thyatira. Throughout Thyatira... There were things, these things called trade guilds, which is a modern, like the modern day labor unions. And in order to practice a trade, you needed to be part of the trade guild. But the problem was that in Thyatira and in most of the Roman Empire, each of these guilds had a god associated with it. And in order to be a part of that guild and therefore be a tradesman or tradeswoman in that industry, you had to participate In the worship of that God. You had to attend the feasts and the festivals and offer the sacrifices to keep your standing within the guild. And to not do so cost you your job. In Pergamum, the pressure on Christian was persecution. Where your faith could cost you your life. In Thyatira, that was not the case. No one was going to kill you for being a Christian in Thyatira. This is Buffalo, after all, not L.A. or New York. We're a hard-working town and we could care less about your religion. Just don't let your religion interfere with your job. You just keep your religion in the church and everything will be alright. Church is church and business is business. And the teaching from this Jezebel was that they were right. 
that business was business and it was okay to sacrifice your Christian principles in the name of business because after all, you needed to make a living. I mean, you can't have a job in Thyatira if you don't, aren't part of a trade guild and you can't be a part of the trade guild if you don't offer to the, offer to, offer sacrifices to gods. You have to do it. John Cooper is a Christian rock artist. He's the lead singer for a band called Skillet. And Skillet is a, is a band that in the last 10, 15 years has become popular not only in the Christian world, but also in the secular world. And early on in that process, when it, it looked like they were becoming popular, a, a Christian businessman came to, to John and he said, he said, you know, John, I think you are the next big thing. I really see you being the next big band to make it in the world. If you just stop talking so much about Jesus, you'll have more success. And in the end, if you if you have more success, you're going to get in more places. And if you get in more places, you'll be able to talk to more people about Jesus. Now, John is a very outspoken Christian. And the, the suggestion was, hey, John, just don't be so outspoken. You don't have to deny your faith, just be quiet about it. You don't have to deny Jesus, just don't talk about him so much. And if you do, your business will grow. Your your success will increase. This is the teaching of Jezebel. And the church was tolerating it within their midst. They knew it was there. They were just choosing to ignore it. Like kids hiding their faces in a corner. If they just didn't see it, maybe it would go away. Some suggested that part of what Jesus means when he says that I gave her time to repent was that the church had actually begun the process of church discipline. They had approached Jezebel about her, this Jezebel about her false teaching and they said, stop it. And she said no. And they said, well, okay. They didn't go any further. They cowered in the midst of this powerful personality of Jezebel. They allowed her to stay and they allowed her teaching to stay in the church. And now she has a following and now the church has a big problem. But it's a problem that they do not see because they have turned a blind eye to it for so long. But Jesus says, I see it. And you may be tolerating it, but I will not tolerate it any longer. I am coming to do something about this problem in your church, Thyatira. And the reason that Jesus is coming is because these opposite directions that the church is going are taking people in two different destinations. Jesus looks at the church, not only does he see two, a growth and a decline, but he sees two end destinations that people are headed to all within this one church of Thyatira. Some in Thyatira, he says, first in verses 22 and 23, They're on the path to destruction. They are on a a one-way street that ends in doom and destruction. This is not only in terms of, of, of final destruction, but also immediate destruction. Not just in terms of eternal destruction, but here in this world, Jesus is about to bring tribulation and distress on some of those in the church in Thyatira. First, he says to Jezebel that he's going to throw her onto a sickbed. Now, Jezebel of the Old Testament, her, her downfall, her death, was that she was thrown from a palace window into the courtyard below. 
It says that when they went to find her body, that they saw nothing, nothing was left of her but her skull because the dogs had come and eaten up the body. There was, she was gone. Likewise, Jesus says that this Jezebel, she will be thrown down and she will be thrown down onto a bed of sickness. Her bed of sin would become a bed of disease. But not only her, he goes on to say that those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Now when sometimes we were in Revelation and we see great tribulation, we think of, we think of a, a, the, the apocalypse, we think of the end. That's not what this is referring to. It's referring to here and now. They're going to experience great distress unless they repent of her works. And then to a third group, he says, I will strike her dead. So there's three people mentioned in these verses. There's Jezebel. There's those who commit adultery with her. And then there's her children. Her her children are not her physical children, but they are her spiritual children. Those who have gone all in with her. They have followed her in her ways and they are spreading her lies to the rest of the church and possibly becoming itinerant missionaries to other churches of this deceit. The Jezebel of the Old Testament, it says that she had infiltrated Israel with over 800 false prophets. In a similar way, Jezebel was filling the church with her representatives. And Jesus says, I can't have that taking place in my church. I am coming and they will be removed. I will strike them dead, he says. But between Jezebel and her children, there's another group. And I think it's the same group described in verse 20 as Jesus says, they are my servants. Who Jezebel, because she's been allowed to exist there, is leading them to immorality and idolatry. Now some say this immorality, this sexual immorality is actual sexual immorality. And I think that's probably true. But also, as we saw last week, we know that when the Bible refers to sexual immorality, sometimes it's referring to attaching our heart to things of this world. It's cheating on our our spouse, God. It's cheating on Jesus by getting comfortable with the world. I think both of those are the case. They've become attached to this world. The, the, The temptation of materialism, the temptation of success has bound them. And led them astray. And Jesus says for his servants who are, who are dabbling in this, his servants who are flirting with this, whose servants who are becoming comfortable with this, he says there's still time to repent. There's still time to turn around. Notice, even as Jesus is bringing judgment, we see his grace. Romans 2, verse 4, this is the New Living Translation, says, "Do not." Paul writes, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But it had not turned Jezebel from their sin. And unless God's servants in the church of Thyatira turn their hearts will become hardened and they will become the objects of God's judgment as well. Jesus is coming to bring an end to this lie that is spreading throughout His church. Not only does He want to bring an end to it in Thyatira, but notice the the problem has become so great that other churches are hearing about it. They're looking and saying, well, it's okay in Thyatira. Maybe it's okay here. And Jesus says, when I bring judgment, 
all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus is coming to make an example of Thyatira. So that others will heed the warning and turn from their sin. This is one destination that people are headed to in the church in Thyatira. But there's another destination. And that is that there are those in this same church who are headed for reward. Verses 24 through 29. But to the rest of you. So there's four groups mentioned. There's Jezebel. There's her children. There's those who are committing sexual immorality. And then there is the rest of them. There are those who have held on and stayed faithful. Who did not buy into her teaching. Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Now this phrase, the deep sea things of Satan. Some think that she was actually saying, look, in order to get to know the enemy, you need to get familiar with him. You need to go all in and become acquainted with Satan and his ways because after all you're a Christian and Jesus' blood will protect you. Some think it's that. Others simply think... And I tend towards this, that what she was saying, these deep things, she was coming along like the Gnostics and saying there's a hidden knowledge, there's a secret way to a deeper relationship with God. And God is saying this deeper way is actually a way way away from God, not towards God. She's not teaching you the deep things of God. She's teaching you the deep things of Satan. But now he comes to the rest of those. And you can imagine a church... With these groups in them. Imagine a church with a Jezebel. This brazen personality. This, this, this one who has a great following. One who, who teaches that it's okay to be okay with the world. It's okay to do all these things. And the church is full of those who are flirting with sin and involved in sin and living it up in the world. And you can imagine the faithful few in the church. What is the way to progress in the Christian life? Those aren't the secret things. What are the secret things? What are the greater works? What does Jesus say? The the way to growth is to just keep doing what you're doing. I lay on you no other burden, which refers back to verse 19. To keep growing in your works of love and faith and service and perseverance. You can imagine Jezebel and her followers were mocking this simple faith of the faithful few. But Jesus says, I lay on you no other burdens. Eugene Peterson once wrote a book on the Christian life. And the title of the book described what was the description of what he views as a faithful Christian life. And that is a long obedience in the same direction. Now that doesn't sound very exhilarating, does it? People will look at that and scoff. A long obedience in the same direction. Really? There's got to be more. This is the call to faithfulness and purity as we follow Jesus in the midst of the pressures of this world. A steadfast obedience. Something Kevin DeYoung calls faithful plotting. I think I've read this quote before, but he says, What the church needs are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. So that's my dream for the church. A multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plotting 
consistency. Now, if you spent a long time in the church and you've been a part of the church for a long time, you have seen a lot of revolutionaries come and go. They come on the scene with a lot of fanfare and they quickly fade away. They're a flash in the pan, often falling away in sin and unbelief. While all along, the faithful plotters keep on plotting. Keep on moving faithfully and obediently in the same direction. This is Jesus' words to those who are left behind. Those who, I imagine, might have been through the ringer with Jezebel. Mocked by her. Said that they're not really Christians since they hadn't experienced what she and her followers had experienced. Looked down on and talked down to. Made fun of for their unwillingness to compromise and stay as outcasts in the society. But Jesus says to them, I see your faithful plotting. I see your consistency. I see your consistency. Keep going. Hold fast. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold on. That's Jesus' words to the faithful in Thyatira. Hold on. I'm coming. Keep going. And for those who hold on, he says that the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. It's quite a picture for faithful plotters. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now these words come directly from Psalm 2, where the psalmist says, that The Lord said to me, putting these words into the lips of Jesus, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now this son says to the churches, my authority will be your authority. You will reign and rule with me. And again, remember who this is written to. Insignificant Thyatira. In the world, world's eyes, the insignificant of the insignificant. Not Jezebel, the one with the large following, the big personality, but the quiet workers of the church. To them, Jesus says, you will rule with me. Reminding us of his words that those who are faithful in this life over a little, he will set over much. And the reminder of Matthew 5, the promise and the beatitudes that blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And not only will they rule with Christ, but they will rule with Christ. Notice where he ends. I will give them the morning star. This morning star is Jesus himself. Patterson says, the promise of the morning star is that the church at Thyatira, faithful to the calling of God, will eventually receive the morning star that is the abiding, close, imminent, an eternal fellowship with the Lord Himself. But do you know when the morning star appears? The morning star is the star that appears right before the morning, which is the time of night when it's the darkest and the coldest. But the morning star comes signifying that the night is almost over and the dawn is coming. Jesus says to the faithful in Thyatira that is about to be surrounded by God's judgment as he comes to judge the wicked in the church, he writes to them and he says, hold on, 
Keep going. Keep doing what you are doing. Remain faithful. I believe those are his words to the faithful in the American church. The church in America, I think it's obvious to most of us, has bought into the immorality and idolatry of the culture around us. They have tolerated it. We have tolerated it. We have even accepted it within our ranks, even taught it. This morning I I read an article put on an official site of the United Methodist Church where a local bishop who used to be Bishop Mark Johnson is now Bishop Mary Johnson. And what he said in this article is, I used to think that God wanted my obedience. But now I realize that all He wants is my love. And to love me in return. And another bishop in the church wrote in the article how much of a privilege it was to walk with Mark through his transgender transition. This week I had breakfast with a friend who used to be in the United Methodist Church, a pastor in the church, and he said he is writing to every single pastor he knows, get out. This is your, this is your covering that's over you. It is time, this is a local United Methodist bishop, it is time to get out. But how did we end here? How, how did we end up here? We tolerated it. We ignored it. Maybe if we just do not look at it, maybe it will go away. But it has not. It's grown and it metastasized and now it must be cut out. And, and I don't say that to be prophetic about what is coming, but I say that to highlight to us Jesus' words to Thyatira. Remain faithful. Keep working. Don't go hide in a hole, but keep moving forward. Keep loving and serving and trusting and persevering. Even when you think no one sees. Even when you think it doesn't matter to anyone if we're just a small church on a back road surrounded by fields. Jesus sees us. It matters to Jesus. Keep going forward. Close with these this words from Paul. And may these be his admonishment to us. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do not give up. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much again for your word. It is remained steadfast and immovable and unshakable through every empire, every every sickness that this world has seen, every every darkness the church has gone through, Your Word has remained faithful even when we have not remained faithful to it. And God, we thank You for Your Word to this church in Thyatira. And we thank You that we can read it and apply it to us here. And Father, may we grow in our good works, but may we not do that at the expense of closing our eyes to sin in our lives and in the lives of this church. May we be concerned not only about doing good, but about being holy. Being righteous. Being pure. As we come to Your Word every week, confront us with it and change us. We need Your help as we live in this world in this day. In Jesus' name, we plead and ask. Amen. Let me invite you to stand if you would. I'll close with these words from Revelation chapter 1.
to Him who loves us. That's good news. And has freed us. That's good news too. From our sins by His blood. And made us a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. You are dismissed.